so we're in uh, Colossians, end of chapter 1. We'll start in verse 24. And so we're, we're moving out of sort of the, the opening of the letter, which was this kind of long, uh, drawn out as Paul has uh, greeted the Colossians and he's given thanks for them and he's offered prayers for them. And then that kind of moved into, as he mentioned, uh, praying uh, and, uh, and uh, giving thanks for the work of, of God the Father who qualified, rescued, transferred the Colossians into the kingdom of the Son, and then he talks about the Son for a while and, and, uh, and the supremacy of Christ as the Lord of creation and the new creation, and how the Colossians themselves are a part of that as God has reconciled them. And then he, at the very end, in verse 23, he says, now the gospel that came to you, this gospel that saved you, now the gospel of the Son is the gospel that I was made a minister of. And so he kind of uses that as a launching point now to, to move into a new section. And he, in, in what we're studying this morning, is going to be talking about his ministry. Uh, his ministry uh, to the Colossians in particular. Now in verses 24 to 29, he's talking a little bit more generally, although he makes reference to the Colossians at the very beginning, talking more generally, his ministry as an apostle for the whole church. And then in verses, uh, chapter 2, verses 1 to 5, he's going to talk more specifically about his ministry on behalf of the Colossians. And in, in uh, verses 24 to 29, we, we see that Paul suffers but rejoices because of this ministry that he's been given. And then in verses 1 to 5 in chapter 2, we see that Paul struggles and rejoices for the purpose of bringing the Colossians to spiritual maturity. And then that's going to lead into next week, uh, kind of one of the, the central parts of the letter as Paul begins to actually address some of the things that were going on in Colossae, some of the cultural pressures that they're facing in a more direct way. He's sort of hinted at it, uh, but the only reason we know that he's kind of been hinting at it is because we look into this next section in, in chapter 2, verses 6 to 23, and we see how some of the things that he's already mentioned, now Paul's going to more explicitly say, don't be led away by this, don't be caught up in this, remember this. So this is going to lead into that section as Paul talks about his ministry in general and then his ministry to the Colossians. So start in verse 24. The first thing we see is that Paul suffers on account of his ministry. He says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. A couple things to notice uh, right off the bat. Uh, the fact that Paul says that he rejoices in his sufferings, uh, that might take us back to uh, chapter 1, verses 10 and 11 in, in Paul's prayer, where he says, uh, I pray that uh, one of the ways that you be, uh, walk worthy of the Lord is that you would be strengthened with all power for uh, steadfastness and patience with joy, right? And so I, I suggested that the ideas of steadfastness and patience are, are very specifically related to suffering or trials. That's when Paul uses those words. He's usually talking about being steadfast in the midst of trials or adversity. And so for Paul to say, now I rejoice in my sufferings is almost for him to say this very thing that I've prayed that would be true about you is something that I am doing in my own life as well. So he's not asking the Colossians to do something that he's not doing, right? It's very easy to tell somebody to rejoice in suffering when you're not suffering and they are. Paul's speaking from experience. He says, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh, and this, the, the idea of being in the, the flesh might point to the idea that the sufferings are are primarily physical. 
They're not necessarily, it's not just uh, emotional suffering, although that is very real, and Paul certainly went through that. He talks about the, the great pressure of anxiety that he faced on behalf of the churches in 2 Corinthians. But here he's talking about his flesh. Remember, he's writing this from prison. Okay? So my sufferings for your sake in, uh, in my flesh, I do my share on behalf of his body. So here, for your sake and his body, uh, his body is the church. So I do, uh, I, I suffer, I rejoice that I'm suffering for your sake, Colossians. Right, so he's talking about the Colossians, but then he expands it and he says, I'm doing my share on behalf of the church. I'm suffering for the church, Christ's body. Now, if you grab the questions on your way in, I, uh, I made a typo. In question one, uh, the very first line says, Paul says that he rejoices in his suffering for the sake of the gospel. And while that certainly is true, that's not actually what Paul says in the text, right? He says that he's rejoicing in his sufferings on behalf of the Colossians and on behalf of the church. And so it's not just that Paul is rejoicing that uh, he gets to uh, suffer because he serves Christ, although that certainly is true. He's rejoicing not just because of his ministry, but because of, of the fact that he gets to do it on behalf of God's people. Not just for God, but for God's people too. And this is challenging, uh, to me at least, because the idea of suffering for God is, well, something I probably wouldn't look forward to necessarily, is something I would maybe do a bit more willingly than I would for some of God's people. I like God more than I like a lot of God's people, right? And so it's remarkable that Paul's talking about this because if you read the way that he interacts with some of the churches, some of the churches uh, treat Paul pretty poorly, right? But Paul, Paul loves the people of God. So he says, I'm more than willing. In fact, I will rejoice the fact that I am suffering because of my ministry for you. I'm suffering on your behalf. I mean, Paul could have packed it in and gone back to Judea and just set up shop there. He didn't need to travel all over the place and get shipwrecked and get stoned and get thrown in prison. But he does it for the sake of his ministry for the people of God. Now, last week we looked at a fun phrase, right? We said Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. So right off the bat, last week we had to say, what in the world does that mean? Now, we have something similar here. Right off the bat, we have to say, when Paul says that he's filling up what's lacking in Christ's afflictions, what does that mean? Because on first blush, it kind of looks like Paul is saying, uh, I am supplying something that's missing from the suffering and death of Christ, right? That somehow what Jesus suffered was not enough, and so now I need to suffer uh, as well for the sake of the church. Now, there's a couple of things that we, we can do for this, but one thing we have to remember is we always have to interpret Scripture with Scripture. So there's plenty of other places in the New Testament where we read that what Christ did was entirely sufficient. Plenty of other places in Paul's writing where he says that. There's other places in the book where we get that, right? So we don't think if, if Paul's being consistent with himself in the book and the other books that he wrote and the rest of the New Testament and the rest of the Bible, that that's what he means. Another thing that will help, we talked last week a little bit about doing word studies. This word, afflictions, is, is important for this discussion because this word is never used to talk about the suffering or death of Christ on the cross. It is never used to describe the atonement. Right? There are other words that 
that the New Testament writers use when they want to talk about the sufferings of Christ on the cross. They never use this word. This word gets used a lot more in discussions about persecution, particularly when it comes to, to God's people. In, I think it's in 2 Thessalonians, um, Paul uses this word uh, when he's encouraging the Thessalonians who are being persecuted that there's going to be justice for them one day when Jesus returns and says that he will, he will bring vengeance upon those who have afflicted you. He's talking about the persecution of, of God's people. So this word is also often paired with the word persecution. Persecutions and afflictions often will go together in the New Testament. So it's not talking about the suffering of Christ on the cross. It's talking in some way about the persecution of Christ. Now, the idea here without, there's, there's lots of different um, proposals about what this could be. One of them that I touched on last night uh, was that there's, there's this idea in, in kind of early Judaism that we looked at this chart last week. There's this idea that towards the end of the, the present age, before the Messiah comes, that there's going to be this increase of affliction or tribulation or trials for God's people. And so some people say that Paul is drawing on that idea and that he's saying um, that there is this kind of set quota of suffering, of persecution for God's people that will be uh, completed before the Messiah comes, or at least for, for the way that Paul would understand it for when he comes again. And that that was kind of a popular way for the, the Jews to understand this, that the, that the righteous are going to suffer before the Messiah comes. And there may be a hint of that in a place like Revelation 6.11 where the martyrs are crying out from, uh, from heaven saying, God, when will you avenge our blood on the earth? And he says, wait a little while until the number of the martyrs is complete. And so there may be a hint of that here it's possible, it's a, it's a pretty popular interpretation among commentators. I don't know if I totally buy it. Um, I was thinking, I didn't change it. Cheryl asked me this morning if I changed anything from last night, because I normally do. Um, and uh, I don't think I changed it, but I've been thinking about it. But I think there's, there may be an easier way to understand this. And that's the, the idea of uh, filling up a lack is something, uh, is, is, a, is a phrase that's used elsewhere in the Bible, and particularly in 1 Corinthians 16, 17. In 1 Corinthians 16, 17, Paul says there are these three people from Corinth who have showed up to where he is, where he's writing the letter from, and that uh, they refreshed his spirit. And that by refreshing his spirit, which probably just means by being with him and, and having the fellowship and encouragement, that by refreshing uh, his spirit, these three Corinthians had supplied what was lacking on your part. So same kind of wording. They'd filled up or say it supplied what was lacking on the part of the rest of the Corinthians. Now another way to translate this, and I think it's the ESV that translates it this way, um, would be that they had made up for your absence. So the word lack can be a reference to, to the absence of a person rather than um, some kind of numerical uh, lack of a you know, quota or something like that. And so it may be that what Paul is communicating here is that as he suffers, uh, he is... Um, making up for Christ's physical absence in suffering uh, the, the persecutions that Christ would suffer were he here, right? 
And I said, well, how does that work? It's like, well, Paul would know very well because when he met Christ on the road to Damascus, he had, he'd never met Christ, right? He had been persecuting God's people. And yet, when Jesus shows up and blinds Paul, what's the first thing he says to him? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And so that there is a solidarity between Christ and his people in such a way that to persecute Christ's people, his body is to persecute Christ. To afflict the church is to afflict Christ. And so that uh, the per- the Christ's afflictions here, I think, is the persecution of his body, the church, and that there is only a lack in it, not because... Um, there's this set amount that, uh, that of suffering that needs to be reached, but because Christ is not physically absent to receive that persecution. Or he's not physically present, rather. He's physically uh, absent. And so his people suffer what Christ would suffer. And Christ himself talks about this, right? He, sa- he says, people, you're going to suffer. People are going to hate you and persecute you because they hated me and they persecuted me. And when they persecute you, it's not because they hate you, it's because they hate me. So I think that's the best way to understand it. This Paul is suffering on behalf, of, uh, on behalf of the gospel, on behalf of Christ's body. Uh, and he, he's doing so because he's, he's He's bearing, as he suffers, he's bearing the, the persecution that Christ uh, would face and that is, that is uh, really intended ultimately for Christ, but they can't get to him, so they're going to persecute his people instead. But Paul rejoices in this, which is very counterintuitive to us. Now, as he suffers for this ministry that he's been given. He's, as we move on to verse 25, Paul says, Of this church I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God that was bestowed on me for your benefit. The stewardship from God is, I think in some other translations, is, is translated as the commission from God. Um, it's, the Greek word is actually the word where we get our word economy, which means uh, like the plan of God. Um, and, but it can also mean, uh, not just refer to the plan itself, but it could also mean the responsibility of managing and executing a plan. And that's sort of what it means here, that Paul has a commission from God to carry out this plan that God has. Certainly not by himself, of course, with the power of the Holy Spirit, but he has a, a particular commission. It was a commission that was bestowed on him specifically for your benefit. So he's, he's talking about the Colossians. We say, well, what, what exactly is that commission? What exactly is that stewardship? Well, before he tells us, he says um, he was made a minister of this so that he might fully carry out the preaching of the Word of God. Now, in verse 26, this is classic Paul. He piles up phrases, but he still hasn't actually explained to us what he, what he means, but he's piling up these, these clauses to fully carry out the preaching of the Word of God. It's the, the result. This is the reason that he's been entrusted with this ministry. And this is kind of a hard phrase. So if you have the New American Standard, you'll see that um, preaching of is in italics, which means that's not there in Greek. That's something that the translators added in to make more sense of what Paul means, because it just, it just says that I might fully carry out the Word of God. Or if you look in the footnote of the New American Standard, 
and says, uh, what does it say here? That I might make full the word of God. So, now this word, to make full, actually it's the same word as this word here, filling up, or is very closely related to it. Um, make full is used uh, over and over again in the New Testament. And when it is used in, uh, when it talks about uh, making full or um, fully carrying out or something, a, a reference to the, the Word of God or the Scriptures or something like that in terms of the content of what is being made full, it's used almost exclusively to describe the fulfillment of prophecy. So you have this in the Gospels especially and, and most particularly in the Gospel of Matthew where Matthew will say over and over again after something has happened, this happened in order to make full or to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by so-and-so or to fulfill the scripture where it is written such-and-such. And so I, I wonder, because some people would look at this and say, well, Paul's, what Paul is saying is that he intends uh, for his ministry to reach all people uh, everywhere. He's going to fully carry out the preaching of the Word of God. While certainly he, Paul has an ambition to preach uh, in as many places as he, as he can to as many people as he can, I don't know if that actually explains what this says, especially because preaching is not actually the word in the text. And so I would probably, you, if it's in italics, you're allowed to cross it out in your Bible because it's not actually there. So don't I would say, I don't think that's the best explanation of what it means. I think I might just say that he was entrusted with this in order that he might fulfill the Word of God, so that he might fulfill something that God had promised, that he might uh, do his part to bring it to pass. Now, all of this, so he's, he was made a minister, that he, he has this particular stewardship or commission from God, a commission that was uh, uniquely bestowed on him for your benefit, and he calls it then something that, uh, something that God has said, the Word of God that he is to fulfill, and then he says, okay, so what is that Word of God? That is, the mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations, but has now been manifested to his saints. So the message that Paul has been entrusted with, the commission that he is to, to, uh, to carry out, the word of God that he is to make full or fulfill is the mystery. You say, well, Paul, that's not super helpful. Mystery, now the way that we think about mystery is, is often, it's, you know, it's something mysterious, it's something that can't be known. We're just never going to know it, right? So we call the doctrine of the Trinity a mystery. We say these things are, are true, we confess these things to be true. Well, how does it all work together? It's a mystery. We don't know, and the more we try to explain it, the more in danger we are of getting it wrong. Right? So we say it's a mystery, we don't try to explain it, we worship him for it. That's not the same kind of mystery that Paul's talking about. For Paul, the idea of a mystery is exactly what he says afterwards. The mystery is this thing which was hidden from past ages and generations, but now is manifested or revealed to his saints. So, when Paul talks about the mystery, and he does this a couple different places, especially here in Colossians and in Ephesians, he talks about uh, this mystery uh, as um, something that was hidden in the past but has now been revealed, something that was not clear in the past, although it was there, and now it has been made clear.
And so, say, okay, so the mystery is something that was veiled, now it's been unveiled, and now we can, we can see it, but we still don't know what the mystery actually is. What is this commission? What is this stewardship that he has? What is the word of God that he has been appointed to be a part of fulfilling? He says the, that the, here he's continuing on and talking about the saints, his saints, it's all, all of God's people. To whom God willed to make known, again, he's not hiding it, now he's revealed it, the riches of the glory, or probably better, the glorious riches of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you. All right, so this, he is, he's saying, this is the mystery. Christ in you. Again, say, right. So what's so mysterious about that? And this is where, especially if we compare, if we look at some of the context here and then we compare it to what we see in Ephesians 3, which is really a parallel passage to this, that the, the, the mystery that was hidden in the past and has now been revealed specifically in Paul's ministry, this special commission that Paul has is that he was the apostle to the Gentiles and that uh, he was to offer the Messiah and everything the Messiah was promising for God's people to those who had never been God's people in the past. And now the doors were open and he was saying all people, Jew and Gentile, can come into a right relationship with God through the Messiah. And so that... Uh, the, the glorious riches of this mystery. Now look at this. It says, this mystery among the Gentiles. And then he says kind of the same, same thing. I think this is, helps us to interpret it, which is uh, Christ. We're going to see in, in 2, uh, is it 2, 3 or 2, 4? He says, Christ, it's 2-2, Christ himself is the mystery, but Christ uh, among the Gentiles, Christ in you, Uh, in and among, it's the same word in Greek. So the mystery in the Gentiles, Christ in you. The glorious hope the hope of glory. So you read then Ephesians 3, 8, and 9, and listen to what Paul says about this. He says, Grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ and to bring to light what is the stewardship or plan, same word as Paul used earlier, of the mystery which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church. And in Ephesians, the idea of the church, is really everywhere in Paul, but very specifically and explicitly in Ephesians, the church is this new body of Jew and Gentile together, those who, those who are the people of the Messiah. And so I think what Paul is, is getting at here is he's, his, his ministry is to proclaim the mystery of Christ, this Messiah who is freely given to the Gentiles. And that was hidden in the Old Testament. We see hints of it, and Paul uses Old Testament Scripture in other places to talk about it, but it's not uh, explicit like Paul makes it now, but he's able to go back and look at the scriptures and say, but see, no, look, God always planned to bring the Gentiles in. And now he's doing it. And I am one that has been commissioned by God to preach this. And so if that's the mystery, and, and, and I would argue based on some of these things that it seems like the Colossian church is probably primarily Gentile, certainly from the area that they're in. Um, but with Paul talk, talking about this stewardship I received on your behalf, make me think that 
the reason I can minister to you, Colossians, is because I've been given this ministry to, to proclaim the gospel to the Gentiles. So it's all of this stuff. So, so what happens as a result of it? Well, we proclaim him. If Christ is the glorious hope, the glorious riches of the mystery that God had hidden and is now revealed, if Christ is, is the center of everything, then we proclaim him. We warn or admonish every man. It's more of a negative term, correcting, warning. We teach every man. It's more positive, instructing, with all wisdom, so that, here's the purpose, we do this so that we may present every man complete in Christ. Um, Notice he, he repeats every man three times here. Every man means every person. Right? The Greek word man can mean male, but it can also just be a general term for people. So we are warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone complete or mature in Christ. This is sort of Paul's mission statement. He's like, this is the commission that I've been given, and so I preach and admonish and teach to everyone so that everyone that I meet can be mature in Christ. It does not matter what ethnic background they come from. Now, that to us doesn't seem like a big deal because we don't really think about the world in terms of a split between Jews and Gentiles, but remember, first of all, Paul's a Jew, and remember where, where he was raised in is no, the, the Gentiles are out. The, they can't come in. Right? We just talked about this when we talked about Jesus going to the temple in Mark. And one of the reasons Jesus gets so upset is that the Jews have set up shop in the court of the Gentiles and are not letting the Gentiles come to where they're supposed to be able to come to worship the God of Israel. And Jesus says, my, uh, don't, don't you know that my Father's house is to be a house of prayer for all nations? but you've made it a den of thieves. So Paul's commission to preach the gospel to everyone, this is what is driving him and driving his ministry to the Colossians. And so he says, for this purpose I labor or I toil, striving according to his power. So Paul's really doing work. And if you, you read his letters and you read the accounts in Acts, you can't question that this guy worked hard. So he really worked, but he was striving according to God's power, which mightily works within him. Um, the word striving is where uh, it's the Greek word that we get our word agonize from. It's actually often used in terms of athletics, uh, to talk about striving for the prize or something like that. Now, he's going to use that word in the beginning of the next section. He's going to sort of link these sections together. Because now he's going to move and he's going to talk specifically, not just about this kind of grand uh, commission that he's been given to preach to the Gentiles, but now specifically, and how do I preaching to the Colossians? What am I doing on behalf of the Colossians? And so he says, for I want you to know how great a struggle, this is the same word, I have on your behalf and for those who are at Laodicea and for all who have not personally seen my face. And what's interesting about this, I think, is, is that uh, Paul, Paul having never been to Colossae, can talk about how he has a struggle on the Colossians' behalf. What I find especially interesting is that when you start trying to think through, well, how did that work? Some people will say, well, Paul's referencing really just all, uh, all of his struggles in ministry and how they ultimately benefit the, the Colossians. I say, well, that might be the case, 
But I think, again, there's maybe an easier way for us to understand this. I think uh, if you look at, no, not Ephesians. Colossians 4.12, you're going to see the same word, struggle, strive, used in a, a bit of a different way. These are the only places where this word occurs in this text, in, in this uh, book. These two verses here, and then Ephesians 4.12. In Ephesians 4.12, Paul says, Epaphras, who's one of your number, he's the guy who founded the church in Colossae, a bond slave of Jesus Christ, sends you his greetings, always laboring earnestly for you in his prayers. Laboring earnestly, same word. Always striving or struggling for you in his prayers that you might stand perfect or mature or complete. Same thing that Paul is aiming for in Colossians 1.28. Fully assured in all the will of God. And then in, in Romans 15, Paul uses the same word. He says, I urge you, brethren, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God for me. I think what Paul might be talking about here is his striving and struggling and agonizing for the Colossians in his prayers for them. Because he's in prison, so there's not a whole lot he can do beyond writing them a letter and praying for them. And he's already talked about how he hasn't ceased to pray for them, that he's continually praying for them. And so he says, I think he's reiterating again, I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf in my prayers, and those are at Laodicea, and all who have not personally seen my face. And so he's not only talking about these Christians here, but he's saying, I'm, I'm praying for all of these churches. And, and then the word that uh, will often introduce, particularly in this kind of a context, um, what's called indirect discourse. And so it's, he's introducing the, the content of the prayer. So he, he, he did this earlier in chapter 1, verse 9. I'm, uh, we've, I've not ceased to pray and ask that, and then he said, here's what I'm praying for. I think that's what's going on here. Saying, I'm struggling in my prayers for you, that your hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love. We see Paul praying that, that there would be a, a, an, an encouragement, a deep encouragement uh, in the the Colossian church, and, and I wonder if this is uh, very similar to what we read in Acts 11, I think maybe 22-ish, uh, where Barnabas shows up in Antioch, and when he shows up, he witnesses the grace of God, and then he encourages, same word, he encourages uh, the Christians there to remain true to the Lord with a resolute heart. And so I, I wonder if that's kind of what Paul is, is getting at here, that uh, encouraging your hearts, um, meaning uh, not just that you'll feel good inside, but that you'll be um, prompted, exhorted to remain true to the Lord. And then having been knit together in love. Here we see a reference to unity. When Paul talks about uh, the fact that the Gentiles are also coming into the people of God now through Christ, there's oftentimes lots of discussion about the disunity of Jew and Gentile in the church just because of all of the ethnic divides. We see this in Galatians, in Ephesians, the end of Romans. And so, Paul's praying that the hearts of the Colossians will be unified together, whether they're Jews or Gentiles. And it seems like the majority of them are probably Gentiles, but there certainly are some Jews. So um, that they would uh, be unified together in love and that, um, that they would... Uh, not find themselves divided 
because of ethnic lines or, or anything like that. That they would be one people who are united around Christ. Um, you see kind of the same uh, idea, particularly as, as he's praying for, for spiritual maturity in Ephesians 4.13, where he says that the spiritual maturity that, that they're going to attain to is the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. You see kind of that idea of knowing the Son of God uh, in, in the rest of this verse. Um, maybe related to that idea. So he's like, I, I want your hearts to be encouraged. I want you to be knit together in love uh, so that, and this is, both of these phrases here just begin with two, two, all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding, two, uh, a true knowledge of God's mystery. And so the idea of resulting or attaining, those are kind of added in to explain these, these uh, two clauses, but they're really just kind of result clauses. So this is the result that I want to see. I want you to have all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding. And then the next phrase, the, uh, a true knowledge of God's mystery, may just kind of further explain what, uh, the first phrase is. So it's all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding. What's well, a true knowledge of God's mystery? Here we have mystery again. And this time it says that God's mystery is Christ Himself. Christ and the, and the way that He would be the Messiah, hidden in past generations and now revealed. Then he says, in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. He's already affirmed several times in this letter that Christ is absolutely supreme. Right? We looked at that last week. There's no deeper spirituality. There's no greater knowledge beyond him. Everything that the Colossians need and everything that we need is found in Christ. And again, this is going to be especially relevant, we'll see, in, in the coming weeks as we look at some of the things that the Colossians were being challenged with. And so right up front, Paul is establishing um, in Christ, you have everything. And uh, I loved just as a sort of explanation of this because this, uh, of all of these, these phrases, the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding, the true knowledge of God's mystery. Uh, Doug Moo, who's a commentator, wrote this about this, uh, this passage. He said, Paul is again piling up words in order to hammer home the truth that Christ and Christ alone is the source of every conceivable bit of spiritual knowledge worth having. Christ is the one in whom is to be found all that one needs in order to understand spiritual reality and to lead a life pleasing to God. Right? Because if the Colossians are being challenged by others who are saying, um, you, you need something a little bit more than Jesus. Jesus is great, but you need to add this other thing to it. There's this extra knowledge that you need to have, or there's these things that you, you're not aware of. You have it, these things haven't been revealed to you. Um, it's a mystery, and I'm saying, no, God's mystery has been revealed. It's Christ, and in Christ is everything, and if it's not in Christ, it's not worth having. All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, these things that other people are, are saying you need. You need more spiritual wisdom. You need more spiritual knowledge. Here's, I can give it to you. Saying, no, it's, it's, all, it's all there in Christ. Yeah. No. Yes. Mm-hmm.
So the, the question, I'll repeat it for the uh, recording. The question is, in verse 27, uh, in chapter 1, it says that the, uh, the mystery is Christ in you. And just about everywhere else, it's either Christ or, or the idea of being in Christ. So what's the, uh, how do we understand it? Is Christ in us or are we in Christ? Um, I, don't, I don't know that there's a significant difference. Um, there is a, there's a, a sort of mutuality to this, uh, this union with Christ where we are in him, uh, but that certainly he also by his spirit is in us. I think in verse 27, the fact that it's preceded by this phrase, the mystery among the Gentiles might explain a little bit more kind of what he means by that. And so that Christ in you, I think you could add Christ in you Gentiles. Um, so I think that might be more of a reference specifically to Christ as being this, uh, this Savior and Lord now for the Gentiles as well. Um, though I think theologically talking about yeah, Christ being in us, I think is you know, absolutely true, of course. So I don't know if he's intending us to draw anything especially more from that particular phrase there. Um, but it's something to consider. So the next time I teach this, I might change my mind. I might change my mind about it this afternoon. So, as we, as we draw to a close now, in, in verse 4, see, I love this because sometimes we look at this and say, Paul, Paul, this is all really wonderful. Why are you writing it? <laughs> like, how does this fit with what you're saying? And it's really great when he tells us why. Like, and we don't have to guess. So I love at the end of the Gospel of John, when John tells us exactly why he wrote. It's like, why did John write this Gospel? Well, I wrote it so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Oh. Well, that makes the way I read the Gospel a little bit different. I don't have to guess why he wrote it. He told me. Same with 1 John. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Oh. That's what the book's about. Okay, so Paul tells us. He doesn't tell us everywhere, but here he does. He says, I say this, all of this, this stuff, and specifically all this stuff probably about Christ being the key to everything with all wisdom and knowledge is found in him. He's God's mystery. That's all you need to know. I say this so that no one will delude you with persuasive argument. Uh, persuasive argument would have been um, the kinds of uh, philosophical uh, argumentation that would have been popular with, with Greek philosophers. Uh, and and uh, just think, we're, we're going to get into more of exactly what he's talking about with that in the coming weeks because he's going to actually kind of unpack that. But it, it might indicate that they are being exposed to uh, all sorts of other arguments from other religious perspectives or worldviews that are uh, sounding persuasive, and, and it's the same is true today. We are constantly exposed to all manner of worldviews that differ from ours, and quite frankly, some of them can sound persuasive. And so Paul's like, I, I want to set this foundation for you of the, that you know that in, in Christ is everything, and you don't need anything else, so that when any other argument, even persuasive-sounding ones, come along, you're able to spot it as a counterfeit. Right? So the Secret Service, when they train people how to spot counterfeit money, they don't give them counterfeit money. They give them real money. And they say, study the real money until you know what it looks like, and then you'll be able to spot a counterfeit because you're so familiar with the real thing. It feels different. It looks different when you've been staring at it over and over and over again. And I think that's kind of what Paul is doing. He says, I want you to see, and even going back to last week, why is he spending all of this time talking about who Jesus is? Well, because when I actually get to talking about all of the things that you're being confronted with that I don't want you to be deluded by or led away by, I want you to be able to look at those things and evaluate them based on this one true thing so that you can spot that Jesus is real and everything else is counterfeit.
For even though I'm absent in body, nevertheless I'm with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good discipline and the stability of your faith in Christ. I do think it's interesting that this section ends in some ways where, where the, the section began in verse 24, Paul talking about himself being absent in body, and, uh, but yet rejoicing. He began with rejoicing in his suffering, suffering because, I would argue, Christ is absent in body. Now, he, he ends by, by saying something. So, in verse 4, you know, he's saying, I, I want to make sure that no one deludes you, de- uh, deceives you, leads you away. But he does say here, but, but I'm rejoicing to see your good discipline and the stability of your faith in Christ. And so, Epaphras has come back and maybe reported about these different pressures that the Colossians are facing from the world around them, but he's also reporting that you know what, but they're, they're standing firm. They're doing well. This is different than some of the other books that he writes where he's got to rebuke them for uh, possibly abandoning Christ, right? In Galatians, he just starts with saying, I'm amazed that you're going to desert him who called you. He doesn't do that here with the Colossians. The Colossians have a stability of faith in Christ that he's rejoicing in, and so he's writing not to correct them necessarily, but to continue to help strengthen them, that they'll continue to stand firm. And so, as we get into uh, kind of the, the, the main part of, of this argument next week, and we start seeing uh, what he's telling the Colossians to do and what he's telling them to avoid and some of the, the pressures that they're facing, we're going to see how some of the, the things that we've learned already about Christ and about his supremacy and sufficiency uh, in, in light of uh, all the other kind of world, uh, worldly arguments, uh, we can continue to see how those things get drawn in uh, to, to what Paul's talking about and start to see some more connections uh, with that.